Uh, and don't worry, welcome back to Speaking from Ignorance, where we were talking about brownfield sites and the housing issues in the UK. What an interesting topic Throw back this to week. episode two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. We're joined today by Luke Gent. Hello, I'm Luke. Hi, I'm Daniel, um, student studying astrophysics. Hi, I am Jack. I'm a professional development coach, a social mobility advocate and a charity sector worker. Hi guys, I'm Sid. I'm an astrophysics PhD student in Heidelberg, Germany. Hello, I'm Don Basilio, a singing teacher, a member of the clergy, also a fictional character <laughs> from um, from uh, Rossini's Barbieri di Sevilla, based on uh, the French play by de Beaumarchais. And now, time for our guest to introduce himself, Luke. Hello, I'm Luke Jen. I'm currently a research assistant in the area of forensic science and anthropology at Fulbright University. That's really interesting. We should just have you on every week and get rid of these physicists. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> Why do you guys need two astrophysics students? Does that guy in Germany even speak English? I thought this was a UK podcast. Brexit means Brexit. Brexit. Ah. Brexit. <laughs> Okay, and if I'm understanding you, Luke, you're an archaeologist by trade. So how does that mesh with the sort of... Forensic anthropologist. Yeah, I'm very, what's with, I'm a very, um, I'm very, let's just say I'm very picky about what I wanted to do. My undergraduate degree essentially is archaeological and forensic sciences, which, and to be fair, a lot of people, half the people do realise they do stick together very well, but half of half people, usually when they try and think of, Archaeology, think of time team, and they think of forensic science, think of like, I don't know, NCIS or CSI, and they go, how do they go both together? Well, they're both reconstructive investigative sciences, just with slightly different time periods and slightly different contexts. Like, a lot of the techniques are used, that are used for both sciences are used, are very similar, if not the same. So I found, obviously found this fascinating, found this interesting, so uh, um, hence why I did the undergraduate degree I wanted to. So yeah, by trade, part archaeologist, part forensic researcher. To be honest, that makes sense because I've I've been reading a book recently about the history of paleontology, and it's like they were saying that um, uh, you know uh, anatomists and forensic scientists and things have actually been far more successful in the history of paleontology at constructing accurate um, uh, uh, hominid skeletons and and actually finding. Uh, and, and geologists have been much better at finding them. So you just go, paleontologists, um, up your game. <laughs> like... That's the beauty of the subject area I'm in, actually, because that's the research area I've I've been in for the past few years I'm always fascinated by, even though I've taken a quick stop break with this research assistant position, is forensic taphonomy. And taphonomy is amazing because it spreads into so many different fields, for example. Like, it spreads anything from paleontology, which is where it originated, to geology, archaeology, and forensic science as well. It has... It's a multidisciplinary subject, which is why I love it. Again, it shows how picky I am as a person and how bored I can get. So it's nice because I get to I get to know and get to know a lot. I get to know a little about a lot of things, if that makes sense. You get to be a, a sort of Renaissance man. I'd hope to be. However, obviously, it makes things so that, much more that difficult. That is the dream. That's the dream. It makes it makes things so much more difficult. <laughs> that sounds really really cool, Luke. Um, so, how long have you been doing this research assistant role? Uh, the research system role has been since last uh, December because I essentially applied for a to start a PhD, and I, it's what happened was even though I got the project, I got the position. Uh, the funding is uh, it's, it's just general studentship competitive funding, and we were going with we it was I was competing against other people, and they said even though you can, didn't get the funding this year, you got the project, so we're going to 
we're going to roll it over to next year. So it's going to start at the end of 2020 instead. And I finished my master's and I was literally, um, I was quite literally working in a private, in a, in a private school as a lab technician for maybe a week before I heard about this research assistant position, which my, uh, which one of my colleagues, my, my old colleagues, uh, told me about. And it's forensic toxicology. And the thing is, I don't have a lot of experience with toxicology, but he told me, you know, why not try and apply for a widen your experience at first i was like oh no i'm not gonna do i was like there's no way i can do this but he was like to be fair you like doing different things anyway so i was like fine i'll apply to it and obviously several months later i'm doing the position somehow <laughs> so awesome. it's been a bit of a whirlwind it ends this december so it's only it was the whole point is is i i was i'm quite lucky in the sense where it's a one-year project which is what i wanted to do it gains me further experience gets me involved in a slightly new field that i've not had much experience in before and it means i can do something useful before i start my phd at the end of this year Having not really done toxicology before, has it been a very, very steep learning curve for you? Oh, wow. Definitely. Like uh, my, uh, what's the word? One of the things I didn't mention at the interview was when they were, because obviously, obviously the people they interviewed, this was at my, the university I did my master's at and undergraduate at. Uh, so they could see obviously what classes I did. And they could, if they, without, without, a diff, without um, any further effort, they could probably figure out I avoided the toxicology units. <laughs> uh, not because not, not, not necessarily because I didn't want to do them. It's just more because there was just other things I felt more interested. I was more interested in anatomy, taphonomy, the decomposition process as opposed to toxicology because that's more of an analytical chemistry point of view. But the PhD I want to do is a mixture of forensic taphonomy, decomp, so decomposition essentially, and toxicology. So this research assistant position I thought was the perfect opportunity for me to get involved in this area. And yes, there's been quite a steep learning curve. But my supervisor knew that, and he's been super, he's been really helpful, and really helpful in getting me on board, getting me up to speed, really. Can you, for the benefit of me and potentially some of our other viewers, define some of the terms that yes, you're using? So, like for example, forensic taphonomy, toxicology, just like general layman's. Sure, I'll, give, so I'll just give you them in the context I know. So, like, uh, okay, so you see, taphonomy. The way I know it is. In, in regards to forensic science is essentially it's the study of human and animal remains how they decompose and how it interacts with the surrounding environment and how that environment interacts with the decomposition process or how they degrade how they become rotten let's say like uh, with them as well so uh, we st essentially study those processes and we have to try and apply them to a criminal investigation to try and make it useful or, uh, or to be official medical legal applications so just again fancy for criminal investigations essentially uh toxicology quite put quite simply i know definitely some analytical chemist friends will butcher will think i'm butchering it, but again i'm trying to speak in layman's terms essentially it's more determining drug use and the potential toxicity of certain substances and seeing how they can further a legal investigation essentially so you can't you're more as investigating how a drug works if it's toxic and does it pose any threat really to like human life or any other life really okay thanks hmm. no worries so you, your main goal is like forensic topotomy and your phd is a mix of that and toxicology what's your actual phd topic do you do you know yet or did you just apply into the field i know the, i know the brief outlines of it and um essentially is it's for the, the specific niche field it is, is forensic proteomics and to be very simple forensic proteomics is the study of the proteome the proteome quite simply in terms is just a it's just the entire 
complement of proteins that's expressed by an organism, more or less. So basically the amount of proteins that's expressed within a, like a human or animal or plant organism, let's just say. And we're studying uh, proteins, more or less, and how they can be applied in the world of forensics. It's very niche, it's very much... Like, it's like my area of forensic taphonomy, so the study of decomposition. It's like my previous research, because I previously researched more from, a, let's just say, a micro-macro scale, where I looked at trauma on uh, skeletal remains, uh, bony remains, let's just say, and I looked at how that changed over time. We're essentially going to be looking at the same thing, but we're going to be looking at how proteins, lipids, and metabolites in the body, uh, so again, molecular biomarkers, molecular biomolecules, and see how they change over time, and see how we can apply it in forensics. So... It's, uh, it's going to be very, it's forensic proteomics is a very, is a relatively new topic. Like proteomics isn't, again, forensics isn't so much, but the molding of the two is, there's been a lot of only recent work done, let's just in the past 15 years, 20 years. Obviously, there has been more prior to that, but like it's very much a fresh, like, take, uh, which is what I'm very excited to be a part of. But also the scary thing about doing something like this is there's not a lot, <laughs> there's not a lot to work on already. So you're, whatever you can. It's exciting. It's very, yeah, very exciting. I'm very happy. Frontiers of, of research. Like, I'm, I'm very excited to be part of it. Like when I read about the project happening, because I first met her, uh, the supervisor, at a conference I went to two years ago, and this was part of her PhD work. And then she became a professor, and then she was advertised for a position. So when I heard she was, she was advertised a PhD project in something that she was doing previously, which was forensic proteomics. It's, I don't want to be cheesy to say it's definitely cool to me, but it, like I knew I wanted to do forensic taphonomy still, but I knew I wanted to make a greater impact. Uh, I knew I wanted to make a great impact. At least I knew I wanted to do something slightly new in it. And when I saw this project, I applied for it immediately because I thought this is something I really definitely could be passionate about. It could really help if it works out. Again, if it works out, which hopefully it will. <laughs> so uh, do you want me to tell you a little bit more about what the aim is with it? Yeah, yeah, that yes, please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. So, um, okay, so basically, in regards to forensic investigation, how a lot of forensic anthropologists get, or archaeologists get involved is they mainly get brought in. Let's just say when remains are beyond a certain point of decomposition, because obviously, have you guys ever heard of? I don't know if you guys ever watched. I mean, this is not a good baseline to ask. If you guys ever watch CSI shows, because they get a maturity a bit wrong, but oh. ask anyways. Have you ever watched any of these CSI shows and heard of something called PMI or post-mortem before? Maybe. I can't imagine they would have brought up because they're not accurate. But, no, that's okay. Post-mortem interval, you essentially look in the window between death and when the body's discovered. And obviously a lot of, and like, anthropologists and archaeologists often get brought into it when the body is either decomposed beyond recognition or decomposed beyond a point where their skills are more useful, for example, because they have a certain skill set where they're able to identify age, sex, or biological information from even just skeletal remains that a lot of pure forensic scientists have not been trained to do. So a main issue that's involved is, for example, there's been a lot of, uh, there's been plenty of research to determine how long someone has been deceased for, if they've only been with, let's just say, deceased for anything from one hour to 36. There's been a lot of research regarding that. And it's very technical and involves a lot of, it involves a lot of biological, biological anything from detecting the temperature to look at, uh, Again, the moisture content, basically there's a ton of factors to look at. However, when they find skeletonized remains, they still use, they still look at well, how it looks, for example. It's something very simple called morphology. They look, at, they look at how, let's just say, degraded it looks. The trouble is, it's, that's very subjective, and you, it may not be entirely accurate. So, for example, you may not, if you find skeletonized remains, you may, not, you, may, you may not be sure whether they've been 
decomposed like that for anything between six months to several years because it depends on the environment it depends whether it's been high high humidity high heat tropical environment or if it's been extremely cold it's been very preservative so hence why people in my field try and get brought into it. but again one of the main issues they have right now is they're still kind of old school about how they identify remains that are scatternized so this project we're planning on doing which is part of what she's done definitely a lot of part of what she's done before is try and look at something more reliable and so we're going to try and look at it from a molecular scale rather than look at it from how it looks to try and see if we can see if the proteins degrade in a pattern and if we can apply that to try and actually say okay even though they've been skeletonized for however many time we might be able to pin it down to within a month or a couple of months which is better than being off by a year like if, they, if they've been let's just say if the if the remains have been there for like 10 years and it's definitely a cold case let's just say it's going to be very difficult to determine with with it, with good accuracy how long they've been decomposed for and that again this is a this is a criminal investigation it doesn't help it doesn't help if even if you're off by hours so the whole point of this is to trying to improve uh improve the investigation side of things from cases that might not have a lot of hope if that makes sense how good is the current accuracy for those criminal investigations I assume it varies based on the time scale, but let's like you you pick one and then you compare uh, like just how good is are the current methods and what's your sort of baseline for improvement. This again, this the trouble is there's a lot of debate in regards to the world of forensic science, and we constantly have to right. deal with people arguing about this. From my personal opinion, I think the current methods we have so far for if they've only if they're only within the first few stages of decomposition, so again, so basically, the, let's just say up to the blue, up to the body's bloating, there's still flesh on, and it's not fully skeletonized, not at the dry decay stage. Uh, they are they can be extremely accurate because what they can do, especially if you bring in specialists, you can bring in specialists who know, let's just say, a lot about the environment. And there's been a lot of again, that's what taphonomy research is about. A lot of what these body farms are used for, like they use a current knowledge about how environment works to allow that to to increase the accuracy of your methods. So I think so I think in regards to whilst the body to be very layman terms, very simply, whilst the body is flesh, the current techniques are very accurate. And they obviously could be more accurate, but they have a lot of they they have a lot of weight to them. Whereas if the body is skeletonized, it's it's either it's either near or there. It's literally it's, it's based on an opinion. You could have, the, the, you could bring in three experts, and they all could have three different opinions of how long the remains have been there for. It really depends, and that's that's the struggle. So, so it's just the fact that after all of the, the flesh is gone and, and the skeleton is just skeletonized, the sort of accuracy just plummets. Yeah. Well, because again, though, because again, we the, the, let's just say the. Yeah, I guess how much does bone decay? Like, what's the what's the time scale for your bones? Now that again, no, yeah, again, that's a very interesting question because again, that's to the point where people argue when does it become archaeology, which is obviously the most frustrating con- question I've always get asked. Uh, that and the grave robber one, which I'll go into in seconds. <laughs> um, uh, so basically, again, it depends on the it depends on the micro environment or the soil or the area it's deposited in. For example, if it's a very calcareous, uh, calcium heavy relatively alkaline soil, quite dry as well, not very moist, and the temperature's not too hot, not too hot, it's relatively cold. The remains can be there for years. Like, this is, this is for example, it's why we find hominin remains that are hundreds of thousands of years old. Like, there's this place called Olduvai Gorge uh, in uh, in Africa, which uh, which has some of the oldest paleontological, uh, like, remains, for example. And, and they, it, the preservation is absolutely amazing. But, for example... This is a question that actually gets asked in a lot of paleontology and archaeology, let's just say. Uh, well, not necessarily archaeology, but why are there why is there a lack of 
gorilla fossil records, for example? That's an interesting question because a lot of let's just say a lot of the uh, let's say older species hang uh, let's just say hanged out or like lived in more tropical areas and remains, even bony remains, decompose very easily uh, over over several years. Over... That makes a lot of sense. So you're, what you're saying is there could be a lot of jungle dinosaurs we don't but know. Didn't they find <laughs> um, the first uh, Homo habilis r remains in Indonesia in Java, I think, which is which is like, uh, uh, isn't that a tropical environment? So was that a fluke, do you think? Or? Well, it's not, again, that's the thing. That's a beautiful, that's why I study the way I study because a lot of it doesn't actually make sense. Where it's like, <laughs> you can't really go, it's like from a larger picture, you could just very simply tell the random person on the street, oh, yeah, by the way, if the, if the, if the, if the ground's cold, dry, full of calcium alkali, sure, they'll preserve for whatever time. They'll preserve for a long time. It's okay. That makes sense. But then if you say, oh, no, the ground's super acidic, super warm, super moist, it'll go in no time. But in actual fact, it's very complicated. Like, again, there's going to be examples like that where we look at them and we're like, this is amazing how has it survived. Like, for example, uh, you should look up these remains called Homo floriendus. They, uh, there's a big news story that came out about them when these remains came out because they were essentially called the hobbit species, uh, which, is, <laughs> which is very interesting because they were of a diminutive size. And they were found on the Flores Islands uh, in, I can't remember exactly where, but it was Indonesia, it was that area. It was... It was, again, what you could consider more of a tropical area on an island, but it was amazing they survived so well. But they were survived, they were found in a cave, act, in a cave system, actually, which caves have different microenvironments, for example, where it's much cooler, it's not as, it's not as, like, it's not as harsh as the outside environment. Like, the biggest question to ask is, how well can they survive in a harsh environment, which is what I like, is what I always find fascinating about this area. It's very fun, it's like a puzzle you never solve, but you find just a bit more out, like, yeah. a bit more about. That's all of science. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. So, so that, that that sounds really interesting. Are you are you like are you trying to look at the sort of proteins that are still on bones and like inside bones to see how much of it broken down yet? There are certain we can call them biomarkers. Just saying, biomarkers is just more as a it's like a biological signature, or a unique a more a unique biological molecule which is unique to the substance you're looking at. So basically, we're looking at bone, both inorganic and organic content. We're essentially trying to look at the proteins that are most commonly found in bone, most abundant, let's just say. And we're seeing because they're the most reliable ones. Because there's no point us looking at a protein that's just never there or will degrade quite easily. So the main aim is to find a protein that is reliable that uh, is a very abundant bone and we can try and identify first need to identify that first to try and figure out we can track it so the main aim of it is to let's just say place again place some remains in the ground take some sample take some samples like sequentially across that timeline obviously do multiple repeats and do multiple remains and you try and see if there's a pattern to come up with and based on um, her previous research there is this is a viable field to look into hence why i desperately want to get involved because it's, it's, it's a power law everything is a power law yeah <laughs> Exactly. Uh, yeah, so we, we're very much interested in, like, again, how proteins degrade and see if there's a pa seeing if we can use that, really. Like, it's just to try and use as an extra tool. Because if we can do this, this can really improve criminal investigations in regard to that side of the area, which a lot of people say has not much hope, really. So is, is, it, is it known that proteins degrade at a specific and measurable rate, then? In regards to the general context, yeah, it's, it's, protein breakdown is something that's been investigated since we've understood what proteins are, really. But in regards to the application of forensic science, forensic proteomics, again, as I said before, is something that's only recently that's just been researched, which is, I love this area because it's something that, like, you wonder why this hasn't been researched before, and you're like, this is, 
it's not simple, but it's also not a terribly complicated. At least come up with the ideal question, like why can't we look at this before? It, like it's like it's uh, quite amazing that we're only looking at this now. But again, it's one of it, I guess it's the because we have now the technology to be able to look at all these things. So it might be to do with that. How do you account for like differing levels of uh, microorganisms or mycological life that might you know break down? That the... is something we're going to be looking. At. I can't tell the answer unfortunately because again it's a new field to me. But this is something I'm going to be learning. This is something I'm going to be hopefully investigating. We're not just investigating the proteins within the body. We're going to be investigating how they may react with the microenvironment in the remains of the in the rem- where the remains are buried or left on, for example, and trying again the whole. The whole idea of topology, forensic topology, is to try and paint a picture from less several things you're looking at. Like, um, it's, I can basically, before I started it, because I originally started my undergraduate research, I thought it was a fascinating topic. I was like, why doesn't anyone really get, why aren't more people into this? And I really found out very quickly why no one, <laughs> likes, why no one gets into it. Because you, there's so many areas you have to touch into. Like, for, like, for, you have to like part of my MRES, like um, like part of my MRES, I had to look at everything from the uh, like and how the bio, let's just say how the geochemistry of the soil may affect the bones themselves. I even had to touch a little bit into uh, like the climate, re- the microclimate regime. Again, this is it's just it's both brilliant but also scary in a sense because I don't really. It's forensic topology. If you go into it, that unless you've done a very specific degree in it, a lot of it, a lot will come up that you've not been, a lot will come up that you've not been trained for. But you have to throw yourself in the deep end and just go with the research. It's very, it's, it's, it's brilliant, but also, it very, much, I found out very quickly why no one, why not many, not why loads of people avoid it <laughs> as a topic. I suppose that that's that's why these sort of like advancements take so long, right? Because like if if we if we go back, you know. I probably don't even know how long, but like I imagine if we go back like eighty years, police weren't like they they didn't have a forensic department, right? So they they didn't have that sort of expertise. I'm not sure if well, that's that, actually true, but I imagine. No, no, that's no, 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 again, no. When crime scene investigation always became a thing, it was more just it was more very early 1900s, even so when it came out. The trouble is, there's still a bit of a stigma towards. I mean, not stigma's the wrong word. There's still a bit of a lack of urgency with it because it was let's just say it took a while for it to be incorporated let's just say and like for example um forensic research i'm only gonna say this from a point of view from england because again i've only done my research here i'm not gonna have to speak for any other nation or or company or what say but from the perspective of england the government let's just say doesn't have a huge investment in investigate in further room forensic research because a lot of what they think again i'm not trying to speak on their behalf but the impression i always get is that they think a lot of it's already I've already been done a lot of it's already let's just say useful enough and as a result it's very hard to come by research funding in my area because it's not seen as important which again is fair obviously everyone's got their own priorities but that, I believe there's a lot more that can be done with forensics but obviously I'm biased clearly but um <laughs> there's a lot of thing there's a lot of projects a lot of the countries are doing that uh, we're not because we're quite restricted regarding funding like as I talked about body farms earlier have you ever heard of a body farm is that where you grow artificial organs? You should and explain. Like that, so. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> don't worry, whenever we hear body farm, they sometimes believe like it's where well, you grow people, it's fine. Okay, body farm essentially is also known as like a HTC, a human autonomy center. Essentially is uh, when you hear people donate the body to science, in England, when you donate your body to science, you actually donate it to medicine, and that basically means you donate it to anatomy labs for as cadavers for uh, anatomy research for you know people going through med school, let's say. Whereas in, uh, let's just say in the US, I believe Canada, Amsterdam in Netherlands and Australia as well, South Australia, I believe, uh, you uh, can donate to a body farm. Now, a body farm essentially is for autonomous people like me to research 
how a body decomposes in a different microenvironment in different contexts and scenarios and try to apply that to real world scenarios, everything from forensics to archaeology to paleontology, for example. And they are extremely useful, obviously very controversial. And this is an example of my opinion of the, let's just say the English government, like where we're missing out on this potential boatload of research. It's not like we, we can't get involved, it's just we can get involved in these external facilities, it's just much harder because obviously we're, we're not there, for example. So uh, yeah, so basically there's, a, there's quite a few limitations with regards to the world of forensics in England, let's just say, because Either they think we don't need to much do much more, or it's just not it's not really that's just really a big deal right now. Do Whereas you I believe think, there's a lot more becoming Do you think that certain media like CSI and, and shows like that might give people in positions of authority the impression that it's all done? Because in those shows they go, Oh yeah, it's definitely died three weeks ago and it's killed Zoom that way. <laughs> I'm like ashamed because I used to love I used to love like NCIS CSI shows before I before it was like during before sixth form I guess before I studied forensics. But the moment I got into my degree or undergraduate degree, I realised how many like I hate to be one of those people that like you're in the subject area, you watch a TV show about it, and I hate to be one of those people. Who, you know, it's never fun to be with those people who nitpick it, and you're like, shut up, let me just have fun. However, there's a lot they get wrong, and they make it seem like. Everything's perfect, and there's no like they don't they really bring up contamination as an issue. It sounds really boring, but it's like one of the biggest issues we have in forensics. And the worst thing is you always see the CSIs come in all suave, the sunglasses, one glove, take it with little tweezers they put out of their pocket, contaminated, and just pick up like a hair and go, I know what's gonna happen. Like, oh, look at that. It's just like and like the media, yeah, you're right. It's they over exaggerate. I mean, it's great because obviously it was great when it first came out because it came became super popular and a lot of and a lot of people wanted to do it, which is there was a surge of students. Like we've had, uh, like what's it? The entry rate for people wanting to do forensics and criminal investigation has been better than ever. I say, besides this, like, exclude twenty twenty, of course, like, uh, but has been better than ever. But the worst thing is these shows are super misleading because they make everyone think, like government officials, everyone really think that it's. They can figure out from everything. Just one drop of blood can solve a crime scene. I mean, technically, I don't know, but. <laughs> Yes, I know you're right. It's it, there's been definitely a big negative influence because of these fictional shows, which I believe if they did bring them more accuracy, it would be more beneficial. But again, I, there's nothing I can there's nothing I can do besides complain. Really, it does sound like from from what I'm hearing from you, it does sound actively bad for for our general population. That because it kind of like paints a sort of picture for our like judicial system that things are like clear cut. Whereas there is this sort of like statistical nature, and we aren't sure, you know, it, it, you know, the body was probably found in this period, but we, we don't entirely know. And you go, if that's the jury's experience with forensics, then you do, you do worry slightly. It's just, yeah, that's, well, that's the thing also, because you do, um, I've, not been, I've not been a expert witness myself, but I'm, a few of my colleagues have. If you, work in, if you work in the realm, or if you work as a forensic scientist, you will often be called up as an expert witness to a certain case, whether it's so many months after a case you've worked on, or maybe so many years, because forensic scientists are the ones who work in the labs, not CSI. See, that's different. CSIs are the ones who work in the field crime scene. Again, some shows, are, shows always get wrong as well. But um, so basically, for example, a main issue that can come up at being, being an expert witness from, from what I've got from my colleagues is you do get the jury who do get surprised by what gets brought up in the case and they because they're basing their knowledge off of because obviously the whole point of the jury is you're trying to create least least amount of cognitive bias but because of these shows you do get a lot of people in the jury that say people in the public who assume things are more ironclad and therefore when they don't hear something ironclad in a court 
they start thinking there's issues with the case. Whereas, no, that's actually just rule. I like that. Like, again, this is only something I've heard as a personal complaint, so don't take my word for it necessarily. Someone should really do an investigation or a study about this, actually. This is a great study opportunity. There is some, there is definitely a negative impact of these shows to the general public, because the moment they start hearing about how a case really works, to us, what might seem like an excellent case, or might seem like excellent results, like, to them, they're like, oh, I saw in this show that something was way more ironclad, whereas to us, this is actually a really great result, but to them, it isn't, because they've just had the bias, and that makes things troublesome, because, you know, it's based on, because obviously that's obviously how they contribute to the judicial system, so... Because they yeah, potentially give the wrong verdict <laughs> as a result, I mean, yeah. There's a whole, there's whole arguments about it, like, it's why shows, for example, like, I guess Bones came out, even though I do have a bone to pick with Bones, for example. That <laughs> uh, like uh, The shows come out like that, they try and be accurate, because the producer on that is Kathy Ruggs, one of my favourite authors, actually. Fortunately, when you go from being an author, because she was a forensic anthropologist, going from an author to media, a lot gets changed to make things more interesting for the TV show, obviously. Again, this is not me slating anything, this is not me slating uh, the art, by the way, Henry. No, no, it's fine. No, no. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just making sure. Though, if anyone, it's just. I'm not explaining the art, Henry, but you are actively a detriment to the science. So if you could just stop. So, to be honest, like, most you're... actors have quite a low opinion of uh, the scripts that are done for serialized TV shows. So you know, yeah, <laughs> like, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> you just have to do it because you got to get. Yeah. So, uh, Luke, your master's was on bone trauma, right? Yes. I remember, so for context, I used to live with Luke's brother, Matt. So I was, I, yeah, like, I've got a little hint of what you're doing. I remember at some point you made some sort of contraption to, like, swing into bones to mimic uh, sort of wounds. But maybe you could describe, A, what bone trauma is, B, what your master's was, uh, and... I'll, I'll get this. Okay, very simply, bone trauma is trauma inflicted upon bone. It could be anything from blunt force trauma to sharp force, and that could be and depending on whether depending on what type of implement was used, determines whether it's blunt force or sharp force. Generally, the to, again, per layman's term, the easiest way to describe it is blunt force trauma could be something like a hammer, uh, where it creates more of like where like it depends on how the energy is spread. For example, and it depends on like the again the, again like again the device used. Whereas sharp force trauma is always always involves like a bladed edge of some kind. And I was very interested in sharp force trauma. I was very interested in how sharp force trauma on bone, specifically, uh, changes in a short period of time because there's practically almost no... Re I found out during my undergraduate degree, and I started kind of semi-initially my undergraduate degree for my undergraduate project, where there's almost, besides a couple of papers, there's almost nothing on how, in the short term, how sharp force trauma, like, again, let's just say from... From, let's just say from uh, an axe. Uh, yeah, axe, like hacking trauma from axes, knife attacks, defensive wounds, stuff like that. How they change short period of time because there's a lot of archaeological investigations where they go, where, and it's, it's quite simply they're like, oh, if it doesn't change over several hundred or thousand years and we're finding archaeological remains with trauma, why would anyone investigate if they change short term for forensics? Which I thought was practically stupid because I was like, well, sure, you can make that claim, but there's no evidence to support that. You can't just. You can't just you should actually check. Right. Yeah, you, you, you can't know check. that they haven't changed. Well, well no, that's <laughs> like, like... the graduate, because my undergraduate project morphed into my my MRES, which is great, because I didn't have enough time from her undergraduate one for it. <laughs> I mean, it was fine, but it morphed into it, which was great. And I essentially was interested, I was like, look, this is a win-win situation. Either we find out what everyone is saying, that, oh, it turns out they don't change much whatsoever, it's not significant, cool, it's great, because that means 
you can now actually back up that claim with some data because there's no there was no there's not much experimental data about it. Or I find out something interesting and annoy a lot of people. The latter happened. Oh, uh, that's why it developed into an MRES. Essentially, what I wanted to find out was in a very short term period, and by that I mean within months. To, does um, trauma on bone specifically shock force from, and I was very much interested in more as hacking trauma, quite like in the context of dismemberment, let's just say again, because they are still, despite what TV shows say, dismemberment is still quite rare. You, you won't, oh, it's not that common for you to find someone heavily like chopped, <laughs> heavily chopped up, let's just say. But I just want to investigate in regards to these really serious wounds. If there are traces left, because again, like you, again, this this is something people don't think about. You do get people who, again, even though it's a rare thing, you do get people who are skilled at it. You do people who might have had butchery experience or medical experience to the point where they might leave barely a trace. For example, I want to investigate. Well, they do leave some form of a trace, only to the point where, like, so my my also my um my background and no, my foundation for it was not just a whole segment chopped off because obviously that's not going to change much and that's the point that's the point everyone's looking at i'm looking at what happens if someone was very careful disjointing the body left some barely 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 any indentations in the bone i want to see how that would change short term and if they might disappear or if they might change to extent it might hinder the identification and i found some promising evidence that within up to eight months of decomposition in relatively acidic relatively destructive soil again nothing amazingly not something amazingly rare that you can't find. It was just, just farmland that was relatively quite common. Where, like, that's a part of it. I also had to try and f choose a re realistic scenario. So I chose a field that anyone with reasonable intelligence could access and sneak onto. Obviously, I got permission for the project, but I had to think realistically. And, like, <laughs> I murdered a guy, made him in a field. Well, no, basically, <laughs> I was like, okay, so I need to think about it's realistic. I found a field of which like, uh, one of my friends owned, and it was something that you could reasonably access and you could reasonably. Dump a body, let's just say. What, do, what so, did you use as a model for the human body? Did you use a pig or something like that? Yes, uh, because, the, because the UK is obviously finicky with these rules, as really uh, my point earlier regarding the body farms, because we're not allowed to use uh, human remains. I mean, what I was doing, you're def even in the body farms, you're, what I was doing was definitely wouldn't be considered respectful. Uh, I'd imagine a lot of families wouldn't be cool with it, which is fair. Like where I had to use pig remains as a proxy, which pigs are... Again, some people argue, but for the UK, it's good enough. Like it's a, it's a really good proxy. They decompose relatively similar to way to worse the way the bones and the way the flesh does as well. And uh, they're like for nutrient, like nutrient. Someone did like a nutrient analysis before where they just identified how human flesh versus uh, pig flesh may decompose similarly, and they, uh, the results are remarkably similar, which is great. So I used pig remains as a proxy, and I had several pig limbs, let's just say, which I got from a butcher. So okay, which was very useful to use. And um, um, I was able to find out that within eight months of uh, burial, or eight months of deposition, that some of the, uh, like a, a notable portion of the cut marks changed to the point where you could misidentify them, be unsure what type of implement caused them, and some where I, because I did mention to leave some that were quite light, again, because that was the whole point of hypothetically come out with, like, what happens if someone was very careful about it. So even some of the careful ones, they almost disappeared to the point where, like, unless you were looking for that, you wouldn't be able to find a trace. So that helped me build up my argument, which hopefully I'm going to publish this year or next year, uh, depending on what <laughs> depending on what happens. Uh, I'm able to at least come out with and set and come out with and say I think there's reasonable evidence that we're missing here, or something that we really do need to look at or consider. Which, of course, has annoyed several people because obviously there's a bunch of people who thought this is something that we don't need to consider. Whereas, because yeah. yeah. it's a basic assumption in the field, yeah. 
Yeah, I do like the. Oh, yeah, it's not important. Have you checked? No, no, it's not important. <laughs> it's not important on the log. It can't be important because that's also like sort of what my PhD is. It's not as extreme, yeah. but my PhD work will also be checking something that people sort of assume to be true. And but I'm like, but but nobody's checked, right? My supervisor, like, no, no, nobody's checked. I'm like, so you're gonna check. You get to do all the hard work of actually check because it's really difficult to check, and people are like. We don't want to do it. It's really, it's really tough. So. Well, it is difficult, like, especially like, um, again, like, my, again, forensic autonomy itself, when you get into it, it's a difficult field because you have to incorporate a bunch of subfields. It's a multidisciplinary topic. So me doing this as well, and there wasn't a lot to go on previously to make, like, again, a lot of, let's just say, points I had to make for my research. I had to be, not circumstantial, but I had to be open about that. I, I had to be very careful not to say, oh, yeah, I'm... Because I can't be like, oh, I'm the only one who's found this, found this out, so, you know, this must be true. No, I still have to be open that this is, I'm, I'm, I've hopefully opened the door for myself and other people to investigate further. Which, again, obviously, is very, again, greater more research, which yeah. is great, but also at the same time, you get a lot of people who are very annoyed. Like, I, I'm not going to yeah. name names, obviously, but there's, I... There's definitely the politics of publications. Yeah. There, where, you know, I assume you would also, if you publish, you go for a referee mm. who in your field you know is probably one of your competitors that questions all your steps you know you have to justify it um so there's the notion of preeminence as well so somebody's already preeminent and is posing the opposite point then you're going to have a difficult time well that's the thing again, I look, again as a researcher you have to be you have to look forward to that because there's always you have to be up for defending your research like you it's just something that always has to be accounted and once you once you're once you get settled on the idea that your research is always going to be challenged, you kind of get over it. I mean, like, I mean, obviously it's still going to be difficult, but the one thing that the one thing I think again, said, uh, said and anyone else again who's doing research as well, I'm sure you can agree. Once you get over the aspect that you're going to be challenged constantly, <laughs> constantly, uh, it, uh, it kind of shapes a bit, it shapes your experience a bit more, in my opinion. Whereas I definitely had some people, not, again, not going to name names, anyone from my department, but I definitely had one or two people who. Looked at when I started my MRS, my start of masters. They definitely looked at what I was doing. I was like, "Yep, not going to work out. You're not going to find anything." I'm just like, "Yep, good to know. Cool, thanks for your support. Good to know." My... Uh, <laughs> but if you find nothing, that's still a result because you Again, go. It's a win-win. Like... I also get to do something similar where either I confirm what the field believes, where yeah, it's not actually that important, which is good because it means hey, I've checked and I will actually have done some serious chemistry to like back it up Ew, chemistry. or guys <laughs> bad news <laughs> everything you've done in the past 20 years is very slightly wrong yeah. well, thing, I'm not, it's not for me it's not i'm not like more or less saying anything's wrong i'm just more pointing out something that could have been i could have been i'm not, I also i'm making more work for people as well like because obviously again forensic investigators when they do find trauma they do do some cool trauma analysis where you can you can do really cool stuff where they do 3d reconstructions to try and determine what's uh, let's see what was the implement, what was the tool used? Because obviously, if you find out what the murder weapon was, or if it was done post mortem, if it was done after death, again, like a lot of dismemberment is, um, you like uh, it, it can really help the investigation. Whereas what I'm suggesting is, yeah, but you could have also done a little background into where the person was buried or deposited where the body was found, and then you could try and help. It could help you figure out maybe how long they were there for as well. And also, you might find you might mistake you might be mistaken. Something that looks like trauma from an axe, but it might be trauma from a cleaver, but it's just widened and become more deteriorated to the point where they believe it's the whip. Like, like, there's been several papers where people have been like, oh, yeah, I've 
creating an average of the width of several types of axes, let's just of axes, let's just say. And if you and they or they looked at thousands of tools and they say if it's between this range and this width, it's going to be this tool. And obviously when it came out, that's amazing. But what I'm suggesting is, yeah, that's great if you've already found the body. What happens if the body's been skeletonized, has been there for a while? No one's talking about that. What happens if the what happens if the trauma yeah, has decomposed? Yeah. Instead of like a very fine uh, blade, it could have been like a blunt axe, but you can't see it. Because... Yeah, there's so much changes that could have happened depending on the micro environment. And the thing is, whenever I brought up the general consensus was, oh, yeah, but we don't have to, we, that doesn't really happen that much. I'm like, yeah, but still, we got to talk yeah, about it. It does, right? Like, it's... It's, like it happens. Like it's like if it didn't happen that much, I wouldn't be bringing it up. Like. So, yeah, that essentially was my Emirates research. I suppose the reason this upsets so many people is because you look at the consequences of this and you just go, a lot of forensic analysis could have been, you know, wrong. If, well, if yeah, you're like... Either wrong, like, especially with cold cases, especially with cold cases as well, because things, I never like to say people were wrong. I just always say, maybe you could have been more informed. Maybe people could have been more informed or they could have found out a bit more if they did this. Also, it's adding extra steps. In regards to forensics, no one likes extra steps because that's also the reason why a lot of forensics don't get, doesn't get researched much because either the government or, I don't know, whoever's investigating might be. It's more work, if that makes sense. Because, again, again, it's not necessarily, you're not necessarily doing it in the pursuit of pure research where let's just say you don't have much of a time limit. You're doing it, criminal investigations is time sensitive. So you don't really want to give them a technique that's just going to waste people's time. So the moment you start bringing up issues like that, it causes it causes like so many interpolitical issues. So basically, my, by me choosing that subject area, I knew I was going to get a lot of like challenges from people saying like, "Why are you doing this? If you do find out more information, what are you going? How is it going to be useful?" And I was kind of always going with the mindset that very simple step. I just want to find out if we can find out more. That's it. And like, whatever people want to do with it, they do with it. Well, it is. I think it's galling in any field when you discover that there's a basic assumption that's never been tested. Yeah. Uh, uh, but no, I hope to carry on more of that outside of the PhD, because obviously the PhD, I'm looking at more of the molecular scale, which is both scary and interesting, because obviously I've only worked at a more macro look at trauma, let's just say, but I'm actually looking at like molecular side of things, which is fascinating, because I essentially get to do relatively the same thing, where I'm looking at something that's not really been done before much, and seeing if it can contribute towards determine how long the body's been there for, we can find out more about the environment and whatnot. So then it's doing the same thing instead of trauma, I'm looking at biomolecules, which is great. But so the trauma side of things, I'm definitely doing that more outside of the PhD. How I'm going to do it, don't know, but <laughs> I won't sleep, I don't know. Uh, it's, I definitely need to carry it on. I definitely need to make sure this doesn't get left alone, especially because there's only me and a few other people interested in it so far. <laughs> I do, I do really like this sort of like can-do attitude by you, Luke, and um, I, I, I don't think you've ever said, you know, I don't know how, how, how to do this, or like, or, you know, this isn't me, or this this isn't my job, you know, you always have this sort of attitude of, you know, I'm just going to go away, I'm going to try and pick it up and do my absolute best, right? So I, I think this sort of like new, fresh study, if there's anyone to, to sort of jump into that new field, it, it's it's going to be you. Thank you. It's literally like, it's like, it's both scary because at the same time it's like, because obviously it depends on your field, because obviously my original discipline is archaeology and forensic sciences, but again, I've had to bring in stuff that's not my field, like um, part of um, my current research assistant project right now, where I'm, uh, or, because again, I'm also like obviously doing a lot of reading, literature reviews and whatnot, I'm doing like, I'm doing different, different writing about, you know, how we determine drugs in the air and whatnot. I've had to quickly learn about uh, not climate physics, but I've had to quickly learn about like meteoroclimatic regimes or like or, like atmospheric chemistry slightly 
Because that, that's what I love about what I do is whenever I try and go, when I have to try and go to new topics like that, there's always a wall or there's always something I go, right, never done this topic before. It's let's get a mountain of reading done. Let's try and, and let's just try and crack the pieces I need. And the thing is, that's also why the field I do is also relatively controversial because you get a lot of people saying, well, if you're not, if you're not an expert in that whole field, how can you be, how can your research be viable? So like, yeah, but no offense in regards to what I do is multidisciplinary. There's no way you can get someone who's an expert in this, 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 now, this. Luke, uh, just to wrap things up now, you're in a very <laughs> unique subfield uh, and you've got a pretty, you know, winding path to get there as well. You've done all sorts of different projects. I feel like this field is actually going to be fairly more popular in the coming years and, you know, hopefully rises in its popularity even further if someone were to uh, fall proverbially follow in your footsteps what sort of advice would you give them if they want to let's say they want to do what you're doing like this field they find forensic taponomy really cool okay uh honestly i have to say be open to jumping in the deep end because you're you're gonna you're gonna feel you're gonna feel like that. And I obviously know that's a lot that happens with a lot of fields, but especially with this one because you're gonna you're gonna encounter a lot of different uh, areas which you've never heard of before. And honestly, I know this is very I know it's very this is a very generic advice where people give like don't be afraid to ask for help. But honestly, first thing you do ask for help, collaborate, like ask for help, try and get as many people different opinion, opinions about it because it is really going to help you like the first thing i found because i really obviously struggled i struggled definitely initially in my field because i because i didn't know what direction what the hell i go to even with people in my, even my seniors in let's just say in forensic anthropology who knew obviously their field but they're like oh yeah but you're talking about aspect i don't know and you have to be really you obviously obviously people might have confidence issues but you really have to be up for asking for help and asking people to try and uh, try and get them involved. Try and get them involved is really because it help, helps them because it gives them further experience. It helps spread the word a bit about how we can be yeah. useful to them and how people can be useful to us. Like forensic economists not only need help from other people, we can be useful to other people as well. Like we are slowly being we are spread so spread into other subfields where we can be more helpful towards. So yeah, I say the number one thing if you want to follow in the similar footsteps is um, don't be afraid of researching the fields that you've never thought about or never touched. Like again, I didn't think a year ago I'd be looking into climate a little bit of a, like climate physical cl or atmospheric chemistry like touching into it like uh but jump jump into it and definitely ask for help like there's no there's nothing there's no reason to be afraid to ask for help nice. regarding it you really like um it'll really be your yeah your biggest your biggest weapon and i don't even know if you want to say that but your biggest weapon your biggest device <laughs> like is is not not manipulating not not ex not, uh, not exploiting but using others you using others in the positive sense like and like yeah like, yeah but it's a give and take relationship yeah, right 100%. people aren't going to help you you have to show them that you know you have something to offer as exactly well. yeah. and i think in your case that's pretty well to us it's been obvious because we've been talking to you for yes <laughs> but i i really think that it's important to enlighten the general public and other people who are in the sorts of um forensics fields that hey you know this is an important thing that we need to research as well. yeah be be pub be public about it be very open because yeah. again i know several forensic economists i've met several like go on a podcast 
I've met very, I've, I've met very <laughs> of which I, I I knew about them through their work, but I was like, but in regards to public awareness, I didn't really know about. And like, it's because it's not a huge problem. It's like, then people need to speak up more about it. I'll be honest, I'd so. never heard of your specific field before we were going and to do this that's podcast. Fine. That's the point. That's yeah, the like, point. Like, it's not, it's not especially a difficult one to comprehend, really, as well. Like, it's just, it's something that needs to be enlightened more outside of the media. So I say, if you're going to go into forensic taphonomy or taphonomy, any, sure. Uh, anyway, the two things I say is definitely ask for help and be a voice to the public. Like those are the two things that will one help our field and also help yourself, really. Because again, you might get some people who've never really heard of the subject before. Someone who's like again uh, analytical chemist or someone who works purely in the biological sciences, and they go, "Wow, I never knew you were doing this. Can I help? Can I contribute in a way?" Because again, you might get someone who's just interested, might want to just lend lend a hand. Like that's happened to me literally before in a conference before, where they heard about my what I was doing. They say, "Oh, do you want to come over to my you my department? And do you want to conduct some of your research there? It'll look good for us, and it'll be good for you." Love it. Yeah. A very light note, just to finish it off. Sharp force trauma must be brilliant at dinner parties because, you know, somebody brings out, you know, <laughs> some sort of steak or something. You Ah, oh, well, that's been cut with that kind of knife. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Great conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. starter. <laughs> so, Luke, do you want to... Thanks for having... First of all, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having Thank me. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Do you want to plug your social media and where people can find you? If you've got a website, I don't know. Yeah, I've got a, uh, I should use my Twitter more, but I've got Twitter, Gent4Amph. Uh, it's where I try to update uh, uh, notes uh, like notes about my work and things in my field. I should really use it more. Uh, but yeah, please follow me on there if you want to. Gent for what? Gent4Amph. And four as an F-O-R. So, yeah, so just follow me on Twitter now. I'll try. We'll, we'll put it in the description. Yeah, I'll try and hopefully <laughs> try and help spread the word of people in my field and fellow colleagues as well. Thank Thanks, you. Luke. Thank you. All right, perfect. Thanks very much. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Bye.